So the last eight months or so of my drinking, I wanted to die. I had reached that point where I was waking up every morning and saying, God, don't let me drink today. God, don't let me drink today. I don't want to drink today. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast, episode 19. Thanks for joining us. Today we have Jen G, who I met at the Happy Trudgers Group in Denver. Jen has also been a part of a couple roundtable podcasts that we've done earlier uh, this year over the last couple months. She's always been one of my favorite voices in the rooms, and I think you guys are going to get a kick out of her story. So without any further delay, let's get started. Thank you, Jen, for sitting down with us today. How's it going? It's good. It's good. I uh, just finished up my workday, so transitioning into our time together. Nice. What kind of work are you into? Um, I'm a public policy consultant, I guess is the unclear way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I help communities think about housing and economic development. Nice. Yeah, that sounds um, pretty important. <laughs> um, Sorry, I laughed because I sure used to think it was super important, but yeah, um, I used to always think I was much more important than I really am. And mm. I like to try to do a good job for my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, when's your sober date and do you have a home group? My sobriety date is September 29th, 2014, and my home group is the Monday, Wednesday, Friday Came to Believe group, formerly of York Street, but since COVID, we are on Zoom, and we meet at noon. Gotcha. Um, How many years sober does that make it then? Six. And you actually celebrated six with us that that night. That was awesome. I did. That was so special um, and like such an unexpected treat because we didn't plan that Um, so that just was lovely to be with my fellows talking about the miracles that you know have brought us where we are today Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun (laughs) and i've got to know you a bit over several years i guess maybe around five years i bet almost six maybe i think whenever you started coming to trudgers you would have met you were there first by a little bit. Yeah. Where did you grow up and what was it like for you? I grew up in Denver and I would say that my perspective on what it was like for me is really different today than what I would have told you before I got sober. Um, but I grew up in uh, the West Wash Park area of Denver in the 70s and 80s and 90s. <laughs> and uh God, it was wonderful. I have an incredibly loving set of parents who still love each other to this day, who live in the house I grew up in. I have a younger brother and, um, you know, raised with really good values and hard work and, um, and, you know, I was just a bit uh, different. <laughs> by so? that I mean well I mean like, I think I was always struggling to fit in you know I was really pretty good at school and that in a small 
classroom can kind of occasionally ostracize you, you know, uh, super teacher's pet, all of that. Didn't really fit in a lot with the kids at school, but tried. And I had a group of friends. Um, my best friend growing up lived two houses down for me and she's a year and a half older. And, um, I, one of my like striking memories of my childhood is I think it was the summer before fifth grade. I just remember being in my parents' basement sobbing with my mom hugging me and just, you know, crying about why no one wants to play with me and why no one wants to be my friend. And, um, you know, in my little world, that was because my best friend had already been to sixth grade. And there's a big difference, you know, between middle school and elementary school. And um, I don't know, I was really into theater. I loved getting to be someone else. And I loved getting to be the star. And I, you know, loved performing. And my parents indulged that, you know, they had me in musical theater stuff from the time I was probably in the third grade through high school hmm. so then if we fast forward a little bit what was your high school like um better i uh went to mullen high school they went co-ed the year i got sober i was originally supposed to go to all girls catholic school but my parents let me go to mullen and that was a big deal Hmm. So, um, you know, I was one of, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 girls in the school that first year. And so it was great because I'd always gotten along well with guys and I got to go to every dance as a freshman, even though I was a nerd who didn't fit in. And I fancied myself, you know, kind of new wave, you know, punk rock before goth came out, you know, alternative and so different and I want to write dark poetry and smoke clove cigarettes and drink, you know? Um, and, and I did that and, you know, had a group of friends that I loved dearly and all the high school dramas that go with that, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so tell us about really... your, um, <laughs> tell us about your first drink then with your crowd. Well, my first drink came well before that. Okay. Um, Honestly, I think I was fascinated by alcohol, uh, even as a little kid, like always mm -hmm. wanting a sip off my dad's beer, um, you know, like demanding when I was probably, I don't know, in eighth grade to be served wine at Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, I really wanted to sit with the adults and not with my brother and the cousins. I wanted to be older. I wanted to be different. And I wanted that, you know, I wanted that special thing that was on the table, and, you know, I would drink what was left in glasses cleaning up and always wanted, wanted that, wanted to be a part of it and demanded that my family indulge me. And, you know, because we don't have any active alcoholics in our family, I don't think they, you know, it was like, whatever, hmm. the French do it, the Spanish do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, um, one of my dad's brothers is in recovery, but uh, in a sister alliance uh, or fellowship, and he sobered up, you know, when I was maybe six or seven. So I don't think my family made those kinds of connections until I was older. Mm. Um, and um, and I mentioned the best friend who's a little older. So that means she had a big sister who was older. And in Colorado, when we were that age, you know, you could drink at 18 and 
go to Thirsty's and get 3-2 beer and stuff. So that was available to us. Um, and, you know, I wanted to be like my, I was just, I wanted, I wanted to fit in. And, you know, so I was seeking opportunities to drink, you know, in eighth grade, freshman year in high school and all the way on until, mm-hmm. you know, I got sober at 39. Hmm. Um, so do you remember kind of a, the first time you were drunk then? I really don't. Um, you know, I have a vague memory from early high school that, um, you know, was out with the friend and her older boyfriend and he had an apartment and we got drunk and smoked some pot. And I just remember puking my guts up, but my reaction was I shouldn't smoke pot. Um, you know, like <laughs> that had nothing to do with all the Keystone light I had drank. Cause there was a, there was a liquor store in our neighborhood that sold to us. You know, see, so um, it's a little different world than the one we live in now. And, um, you know, I mean, I had a fake ID in high school that one of the guys I went to high school with made because you could do that. They're, you know, like it didn't have all the technology that IDs have now. So I just, you know, continued to seek opportunities to drink. Um, and that, you know, led to a lot of dances I don't remember. Um, when I was 16, U2 played at Red Rocks. And it was the year that they put out the song Satellite of Love with Lou Reed. Or they, you know, did some partnership with Lou Reed anyway. Lou Reed was one of my favorites. And so I drove the group of my friends up to see the show. And when we got to the Red Rocks parking lot, I kind of triumphantly pulled out this bottle of vodka that I had bought. So excited to share it with them. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. And I drank it. I drank the whole thing. And um, was obviously so unbelievably drunk that my friends rolled me under my car and went to the show because they didn't want me to get arrested. So they figured if I was under the car, that would be safe enough. Um, so I heard you two play live at Red Rocks from the dirt of the gravel parking lot. Wow. And my response and my response to that was I should not drink vodka. You know, no like response of like, you know, wow, I really drank too much. None of that. And it was all jokes and laughter and excuses to my friends who drove me home, you know, because mm-hmm. I was obviously still really drunk by the time the show was over. Um, you know, so I would straighten up and, but, but that's like a, one of the big drinking things from my high school years that I remember. And, uh, you know, otherwise it was a lot of classic high school party stuff, you know, keggers in a park and drinking and, you know, um, I always wanted more, but sometimes there wasn't enough to even, you know, get drunk. Just mm-hmm. everybody was drinking and having fun. Um, so, and, you your, know, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say. And so, you know, there would be times when I would come home and puke, uh, reeking of cigarettes, reeking of booze. And my mom would wake up because the bathroom was right next to their bedroom. You know, I'm puking my guts out and like, bless her heart. She didn't question when I would say things like, oh, I've got a stomach bug or, oh, I must have eaten something weird or, oh, don't worry about it. Like she never confronted me. And, and 
And I think it's because it just wouldn't have occurred to her that I would be drunk. Hmm. She just, you know, would have had no experience with that. Um, or maybe she and my dad talked about it and said, let's not confront her. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, there were periods in high school, my high school graduation, my best friend's mom snitched on me to my dad and told him I had a bottle of Jack Daniels in my in my room for graduation night. And dad let me keep it, but he said, you've got to really watch your drinking because, you know, in our family, some of the uncles that had preceded me who were long dead um, or great uncles, you know, had been alcoholics. And my dad thought that his oldest brother who had died young was an alcoholic. Mm. Um, But again, like never seeing it, never being around it had no meaning to me. And, and I think even then like drinking meant joy and being social and having all the pieces inside me fit in. And I was funny and I was pretty and I was adventurous and I loved that. And I, I and it made me feel older and, you know, different from who I was, which I really wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier how you wanted to be an adult and part of, it seems like that was something that you were still chasing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I continued to chase it. You know, um, I always wanted to be ahead of where I was supposed to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether that was, um, you know, I got my first job at 14 because I wanted to have my own money and my own independence. And I couldn't stand the idea of babysitting. Right. So I rode my bike to Bonnie Bray ice cream and was an ice cream girl with my little work permit from the state of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and as soon as I was old enough, I wanted to waitress at a village inn. And then when I was old enough to work someplace else that served booze, I wanted to work there and make more money. Um, you know, I didn't want to live in the dorms in college. I wanted to get an apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those things are true. And when I, I changed schools midway through uh, college. And when I got to the new place, CU Denver, I was like, oh, well, these classes are great, but this one looks too easy. So I'll, I'll see if they can let me into the graduate class. You know, like I always wanted, I don't know, more like proof that I was really someone. More um, validation. Right? Right? Yeah. I mean, throw me a damn parade. <laughs> look, at, look at all I've achieved. A damn parade. <laughs> despite all my, my dark suffering and poetry and, you know, punk music and new wave and you know, I'm so sad. Yeah. How did your relationship with alcohol change then in the dynamic when you were able to buy it yourself? It sounds like you didn't really have much of a problem getting it anyways. <laughs> no. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because the only time my fake ID was questioned was after I graduated high school and I went to Chicago with a girlfriend and we were trying to get into this club in, um, the Cabrini green neighborhood in Chicago in like 1993, mm-hmm. um, not a good spot for two young women to go on their own. Mm. And, you know, I basically fought with a doorman that that was my real idea and my real name. And he eventually let me in, but that was the last time I ever really needed to use it. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, in college, drinking was still mostly a weekend thing, but some nights, um, 
my first, the first school I went to was the Colorado School of Mines. And, you know, uh, culturally, they just didn't have the party scene I was looking for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a good friend from high school went to DU. And so I pretty much spent every weekend of my freshman year in college in her dorm room at DU, uh, partying with the fraternities and sororities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that what goes along with all of that, right, is um, drinking way too much, blacking out, um, you know, making out with people that I didn't know, um, but thinking it was the best thing on the planet. Like I was so free and so adult and so fun and so special. Did you have anybody Um, come in and tell you that you had a problem? You know, a guy in high school who... I had been really good friends with, and then we had a falling out, you know, at one point, you know, said to me, he was really worried about my drinking and where I was going to end up. And as soon as I heard that, you know, we never spoke again. Mm-hmm. Um, you just clearly he misunderstood me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was it. You know, I'm, um, really capable of a high level of deception and of pulling it together. And my grades never suffered. You know, my, I would show up to work. I would show up to family. Um, but, but I always wanted to leave, you know, I think about all the Thanksgivings where we had family dinner. And as soon as the pie was over, I was out the door going to the bar in our neighborhood that would serve me with my best friend to play pool. And that's mm-hmm. what we are going to go play pool. But, you know, really it was, we'll sit by the pool table and drink with yeah. these adult men while we were in high school. Mm. Wow. All right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's just sort of what you do. If you want to drink, you go where the booze is. Yeah. And it just reminds me, um, you know, how you are, you know, hanging out with grownups and people that are ahead of the game where you want it to be kind of ahead of the exactly. game. I was home, Yeah, you know, and I, and, and I could be whoever, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, nobody knew I was a nerd or nobody knew I was awkward or nobody knew, um, you know, how I was really probably quite insecure. Um, you know, and then, uh, I met the man who became my husband when I was 19 we didn't get married at 19, but, um, I met him working in a restaurant. He was a cook and I was a waitress and, you know, he is five years older than me. So he was 24 when we met. Um, and so, you know, I just went where he went and eventually would go to the bars that he went to. And the people who worked at the bars assumed I was old enough because I was with him. Mm. Um, so, you know, we had a great group of friends, you know, in your early 20s and you party and you work hard and close down bars and have adventures and romance and fights and fun. And and it was all lovely. And I graduated college and started grad school and got my first job and finished grad school and was kind of off on the, you know, professional. I want to rule the world of small town consulting. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I laugh because like, um, I just like, you know, I started work at this consulting firm and within the first like three months, I was like, I want to be a partner. 
like, what does it take to be a partner? And I did all that it took to be a partner. And I was a partner by the time I was 27, you know, just really driven. And like, again, drinking in my mind was like, this is what you do. Like, this is how business deals get done. And you drink with clients and you, you know, play in golf tournaments and get drunk all day. And, you know, it's, it's another sign that I've arrived, you know, like how, Bill Wilson talks about that. I had so many of those, like I have arrived moments Mm. and in my mind, I would have them, you know, blown up. Like, I don't know, this is on a humongous, I don't know, really important stage. But in reality, you know, I was at a conference at a hotel in Pueblo drinking with my client and some of her clients, you know, I mean, not like world changing kind of stuff, just sort of really good, but modest career stuff. Um, but it was all about, you know, being able to drink. I mean, like I I took pride in how much I was able to drink and still be like perfectly sober and, or, or keeping it together. And, um, one of my first big projects was doing work for a state agency that, um, had money to invest in an anti-drunk driving campaign. And so I got to do all the market research around persistent drunk driving. And uh, it terrified me that if I ever got a DUI, I would lose that job. So I just stopped driving when I was drunk and let other people carry the weight for me, you know? Like my husband could drive or my friend could drive or I'd take a cab, but like I wouldn't be the one behind the wheel. Like it couldn't impact my drinking. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I mean, and I would arrange the world so that my friends would carry the weight of being the drunk driver because I didn't want to lose my job. So you have a high level capability of self-deception, as you said. Totally. And in your world right now, um, or back then, this stuff is still working for you. Yeah. You know, I would have periods where I would really overdo it, you know, and, and miss something important. But that really didn't happen until my 30s. You know, mm-hmm. I think through my 20s, you know, the life I was living was pretty fun and adventurous and rough and tumble. And where my drinking was impacting my life was in just me wanting to leave family get togethers or other events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and at the time I didn't know it was because I wanted to get drunk at the time. I thought, you know, this is tedious or, Oh God, you know, do I have to go to one more family dinner? And I mean, I just I hate that I used to think these things. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's the cloud of booze. It, I don't mm-hmm. see other people as, you know, their own individual selves, right? They're just people in my play, you know, that I'm running the show and they're, they're just there to serve me in some respect. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's that, that just utter selfishness and self-centeredness of, you know, I need to be the best. I need to be the star. I need to get all the kudos. And I also don't need to follow any of the rules, You know what I mean? Like the rules don't apply to me. And in your 30s then, when did you start noticing or give us an example of a time when you started noticing that this stuff isn't working like it used to? 
you know, Alfredo, I really didn't come to that conclusion until the last year of my drinking. You know, my world kept getting smaller and smaller. I, you know, was, was a partner in that old business. And after 2001, you know, we had some major economic impacts in the country and our business shrank and I was really afraid. So, you know, in classic selfish and self-centered alcoholic fashion, um, I started going to a bar in Cherry Creek at like three in the afternoon with another partner to plot our next move. But really it was, we were both afraid and wanted to drink. And uh, I just sort of made the decision on a Friday that I was going to quit that job, sell my shares and start my own business. And I did that and never once talked about it with my husband. And, you know, like I just was, hey, here's what I'm going to do. And I was the primary breadwinner in the family. It's like, hey, I'm going to quit and do this and start my own thing, you know, starting August 1st or whatever. That's pretty brave at that time. Uh, no, it was, it was just like that overconfidence and yeah. that, you know, okay. I'm afraid of what this environment is looking like and it's going to be hard. So I'm going to do my own thing and my clients will go with me. And many of them did. And for the first year, that was pretty cool until I got to know all the other people on my block who worked from home and some of them liked to drink too. And so, you know, I, slowly over time wasn't working a full day, right? I was just putting in a couple hours here and there to keep people off my back, keep things going. I wasn't doing any marketing and I was uh, drinking a lot alone in the afternoons. And at some point, a couple of years in, oh, I got a tax bill and it freaked me out. And my accountant said, well, maybe you should get an office. So she says, get an office. And I take that to mean, go rent a vacant storefront on Colfax down the block from your house, turn it into a retail store and run your business out of that. <laughs> like She was thinking maybe like spend $200 a month on a room. Mm. And I went on this ridiculous adventure, you know, cashing out my 401k and all of this stuff to have this dream that wasn't really a dream until the moment that she said you should get an office. Um, you know, and that again, was the next evolution of, you know, I would, and I went into that business with my um, brother-in-law's wife and it wasn't really a business. It was sort of a hobby where we hosted parties on second Saturday every month at Colfax and we had art on the walls and we had booze for people to drink. And, and it was this glorious thing. One, one, one Saturday night a month. And the rest of the time it was me sitting in there alone, staring at stuff, drinking, um, you know, and not surprisingly, the consulting work dried up and, you know, we were going into the 2008 recession and, um, a lot of my work was in, um, touched on residential real estate. So that all dried up and, you know, people were going bankrupt and I was looking at not being able to pay a mortgage. And so I, uh, started to look for a job and I needed a reference. Well, that old company had been the only other place I'd worked. And so like Jim in the big book where he, you know, goes back to work for the concern he once owned, I called them for a reference and they happened to have a project that, that, that they could use me on and they brought me back. Um, and that both saved me and I think extended my drinking for a while because I had a steady paycheck and they remembered me as being a rock star. 
Um, and, you know, instead I was slowly falling apart, you know, where really all I could do was get up and go to work. And in those years when I was solo, um, my anxiety was so high, I could barely drive a car, you know, and my, I was convinced it was all anxiety, but really it was probably withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got a prescription for Anifan from my doctor to help manage my anxiety of being such a, you know, smart businesswoman at a trying time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and instead that just was a way to replace my drinking and periodically I would have moments of like, I've got to change my life. I've got to stop drinking. I've got to do something like this isn't working. Why am I so miserable? And that was as far as it would get just those like private moments writing in a notebook. Um, Did your doctor ask you how much you were drinking? Well, sure. But I lied. Yeah. I think, you know, I probably cut it more than in half, maybe by 75%. So I think I said maybe I had like three or four drinks a day. So really I was drinking probably 12 or 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother ends, ended up owning a, a wine and beer shop. And so, you know, I would help him with his books or his invoices in exchange for booze. But at one point um, I stopped buying booze from him because you know, even though I got a great price, it was, he would see how much I was buying. Right. And he might think, well, that's for a month. And I was thinking it was for a weekend. Mm. Um, you know, so I started to become aware that like at the periphery, right. Like never right in front of my face. Um, I mean, I remember we hosted Thanksgiving dinner one year and I think there were 12 of us and I bought two cases of wine. And I was worried we were going to run out. Mm. But, you know, most people don't drink two bottles of wine with one dinner. Right. Um, you know, and but I mean, but two that's, cases. Right. <laughs> and like thinking and like and I bought beer and whiskey and stuff on top of that. But yeah, of course, um, of course, because, you know, I got to have a full display and. It's just it like this just reminded me I had a moment in that second stint at the old job, maybe in like 2011 or 12. So just a couple years before I got sober and I was going to have some of my coworkers over to talk about a business thing. And I, so I being the good hostess, I was like, what do you like to drink? And each person kind of told me what they like to drink. And I went out and bought a shit ton of all the stuff that they liked, right? And high-end and all of that, so that when they arrived on the dining room table, I had this display of, like, all their favorite beers, wines, and liquors. And uh, and they were all kind of uncomfortable with that. <laughs> I was so proud of what I'd done. Um, you know, and, like, we were there to talk about something for maybe an hour, and so they each had one drink, if that, and I had, you know, $200 worth of booze mm. didn't go away, didn't go to waste. But, you know, again, like that misperception of what I think is a normal amount or, or would be like a really great hostess is, you know, an insane amount of booze. Yeah. It was pretty skewed. That uh, right. Perception. <laughs> so let's fast forward to when you hit your bottom or near it. 
So the last eight months or so of my drinking, I wanted to die. I had reached that point where I was waking up every morning and saying, God, don't let me drink today. God, don't let me drink today. I don't want to drink today. Making my way out of bed, taking an Ativan and driving and to get me through my 10 minute drive to the office. And I would go to the office and I would close my office door and I would get out a notepad and just write like, what the hell is wrong with me? I don't understand what's wrong with me. And, and that kept going. And I started to get really suicidal in my blackouts. And so I drank on my front porch year round. And, uh, I apparently started telling neighbors that I was going to kill myself. And, you know, periodically through this time, my husband would say, you know, do you want to go to rehab? I think there's something really wrong with you. So oh, no, 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 no. You know, I'm fine. I'm fine. I, I'll get it together. And I tried to quit drinking by smoking pot and eating edibles because those became legal that January of 2014. And that lasted a month. And I was so proud of myself that I didn't drink for that month. Um, but I was high off my gourd the whole time. And I was bringing edibles with me to work and on airplanes and, you know, everywhere. Mm. Um, because... I needed something, you know, I mean, I, I took a bite of an edible piece of candy on a plane next to my boss. Right. Like that's how badly I needed to feel different than the way I was feeling the moment before. And that whole time I never went out and my birthday is at the end of January. So I went out for brunch with my two girlfriends and, you know, sat down at the table in the restaurant and I was planning to have a nice tea because I don't drink anymore because I proved I'm not an alcoholic because I didn't drink all those days and the waiter comes up and my first girlfriend orders you know like a brunchy cocktail and the second one orders a brunchy cocktail and the next thing I knew I was ordering a brunchy cocktail right and I drank it and I kept on drinking and I went just as hard if not harder than I'd done the day before that 30 days started. And um, the day before I woke up sober was just any other day in this like eight month long cycle of wanting to die, wanting to not drink, changing, thinking I was changing my mind by late afternoon and having to leave work early to go get a drink and being blackout drunk by the time my husband got home from work at 7.30 or 8 or 9. Um, during that period, I uh, started to pass out and hit my face on my kitchen counter, gave myself a black eye and a nice scar in my nose. And the next day at work, I told everyone I tripped over the cat. And then a little bit later, I was on my front porch and a neighbor was shaking me awake. I had fallen and separated my shoulder and was lying in a pool of glass on my porch and she thought I was dead and she couldn't wake me up. And then I woke up and I was like, oh, I'm fine. I must have just tripped. No problem. But separated shoulder. Um, and, and still, like, so lost and so dark inside and so terribly lonely. You know, um, just feeling all that black emptiness on the inside. And I know there's a song or people talk about a God-shaped hole and like that makes sense because 
had this gaping emptiness that no matter how much I drank, I couldn't fill it. I couldn't stop drinking. And that's just torture. And, um, and so I think my last night of drinking was like any other. I probably drank a 12-pack of beer and a pint of bourbon, if not more bourbon. Because <clears throat> I live a block away from a liquor store, so I would walk there when I would run out. Um, and uh, I thought I was having a heart attack the next day. And, like, my Ativan wasn't working. And for whatever reason, I, I didn't go to the liquor store. But I was just miserable and heart racing and mind racing and I'm sure like classic symptoms of withdrawal but I didn't know it and finally I was convinced I was going to die so I called 911 and uh, fire department guys came and I had like stacked all my medication on the table next to me while I laid down on the couch and uh, and I was like I think I'm having a heart attack and the guy's like no I think you're having a panic attack they looked at the medicines or whatever, like, are you going to be okay? And they kind of got me calmed down. And I was like, okay. But my neighbors who'd been hearing me say I was going to kill myself saw the fire truck. And so they were rightfully afraid. And um, they knew my maiden name and looked up and found and called my parents and said, you know, we're really worried about Jen. Hold on. Is that, a, is that a plane back there right now? There's <laughs> a airplane flying over my house good god okay we'll, we'll pause for the air force um anyway um so so yeah my neighbors reached out to my family and um when my husband got home from work that night he had gone over to the neighbors to have a drink with them and uh because they were also my drinking buddies for a few years but uh you know, Dave came home and said, they've called your parents. They're, they're, they're talking intervention. They're, they, I don't know. They want to do something about your drinking. And I freaked out. And the next morning was a Monday and I woke up at six in the morning and drove to my parents' house to convince them that I didn't have a problem with alcohol. You know, like I wanted to defend my drinking to the death. Yeah. And, um, you know, and they're like, we're really worried. And they're saying all this. I'm like, you know, the usual lies, right? Like it's, it was just a bad night and, you know, it's okay. And I've just been so stressed and I have this health condition that causes me pain. So of course I'm drinking too much, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it was like the walls were starting to crumble, you know, like they knew something was wrong. And so I had to prove that I would be okay. Right. So I'm calling my primary care physician and trying to come up with a plan. And, uh, and yet I wasn't drunk and I would, was determined not to drink and was like, okay, well, I'll go on a walk, right? That's healthy, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up walking around the lake and city park, listening to music and saying the Hail Mary around and around and around. Cause I, I wanted to be better, but I didn't know how. And I was really afraid of how that was going to come about. And, um, like, so during that week, I made the plans like I was going to do outpatient. And then I got word that my family was going to do an intervention. So I called my primary care physician to ask her to please come to the intervention to tell them that I wasn't an alcoholic. 
And? And uh, <laughs> she told me that if someone offered her 30 days off, that she would take it. And she encouraged me to take it. Because <laughs> um, she probably had my number, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a great doctor. But, uh, you know, so that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I didn't drink. And it was terrifying. And I didn't know what to do. And I was on the phone at night with my best friends because they were going to be part of the intervention. So they were filling me in on all the intervention stuff and how they'd called my boss and they, all the bosses knew and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, and that Saturday morning I went across the street to the house I'm looking at right now from my porch and had my intervention and all through it, I was convinced that my plan of meditation, yoga, and outpatient was going to fix me. Mm. And I was going to turn down the help being offered. And I was, you know, part angry and ashamed and terrified. And also, like, I had evidence. I was five days sober. So that was proof I was not an alcoholic. Um And so I started my protestations at the end of it, right? Like, no, no, I've got a plan. I've got a plan. And finally, my husband just said, Jen, what do you have to lose? And for some reason, that broke through all of my denials. And I just said, okay. And the next thing I knew, I was off to a treatment center. So you did 30 days at the treatment center? I did 30 days at the treatment center good food and a big book. (laughs) Um, It was really good for me to be in treatment. Like I know so many people, um, you know, don't have that opportunity. And, you know, I think, I think maybe you came in off the street. Yeah. I did. Yeah. So like, I can't fathom that honestly. Um, And I think it's partly because I was so tied up in my job, which was the last thing that was kind of partially functioning in my life Mm -hmm. that the, um, that going to treatment for 30 days and following someone else's schedule and doing what they told me was really humbling. And um, also really freeing because I didn't have to pretend anymore. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. So there was no way for me to like act my way towards the right thing. Cause I didn't know what that was. I had no knowledge of, of alcoholism or, or anything like I driving up there. I thought I need, I, I thought I could do a 30 day program in two weeks because I'm such an overachiever. <laughs> I'm not really... surprised. I'm not surprised you would have thought that. Right. But isn't, I mean, that's just, that's part of the, that's, that's, that's part of, you know, how my alcoholism plays out, right? That yeah. cr- crazy ego and all of that. But um, So then you finished was 30 a, days. Yep. And, and I did the one thing they told me to do, which was the day you get out, go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did that. What was your you first know, meeting our, like? Um, well, they had advised us to go to women's meetings. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I found a women's meeting that was a big book study, which totally appealed to me. Right. Cause I'm a book girl, um, like school books. I didn't know at the time that I was going to be a big book girl, but, um, I went and it was four other women at a church. Um, and they were reading, I think stories out of the big book. Um, but they were so kind and so loving. And I was so surprised that they knew I was new, 
<laughs> and um, and that was that. And then before I left the treatment center, I had outlined all of the meetings I was going to go to each day of the week, you know, which was super helpful. Um, so the next day I walked into Treasures and that was my first home group. And what a relief it was to walk down those stairs and see a lot of business people, you know, because I had had this perception until I got to treatment that really only men were alcoholics and alcoholic was like a description of being homeless and drinking on the side of the road, right? Not, not that people who still showed up for work could still be alcoholics, right? Not, not people who still had their house or their car who had not gotten a DUI, who had never been arrested. I mean, that's me. Um, and so Treasures was exactly the right room I needed to be in to um, start to dip my toe into this life. Did you get a sponsor right away? I did not. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. I came in in early November and didn't get a sponsor until about the first week of December. And I didn't ask her to sponsor me. One day she came up to me and said, I don't think you have a sponsor yet. Would you like to meet for coffee? And I found myself saying yes. And um, I just, that was just so God working in her and working in me. Um, and so by that time, I wanted to stay sober so desperately. And I was so afraid and so uncomfortable and awkward in my body and awkward in my life and awkward in my job. And she was so polished and so together and like, so like the picture of what, you know, I thought a sober woman should look like. And she would meet with me and take me through the steps. And it was so extraordinary. I couldn't believe that a person like her wanted to talk to a person like me. And then we talked about our drinking and I realized like I'm seeing her at five years sober. I'm not seeing her at 30 days, you know, and she taught me so, so, so much, you know, not just taking me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but like how to be a closed mouthed friend, how to show up on time and, and be present and um, to not make her or any other person my God, right? To like take God with me. And it's a gift I don't think I can ever repay. And I just, you know, adore her to this day. Um, What's it like today? Today I fit in my own skin. And I know who I am and um, all of those like false trappings or outward signs of what would make it so that I'm okay and I fit and I'm a good person or whatever have all really changed. And it's funny because I live in the same house, married to the same man, thank God, um, have the same pet. I'm the same, oh, I don't have the same car. I used to have the same car. But anyway, I'm just trying to say like I had all these things that were the same and so the difference is me. And um, I 
sobriety is a journey. And I think it's really true how, you know, people say the best years of your life are ahead of you. Like the last six years of my life have been extraordinary. First of all, because I'm not drunk, but, but also because, um, I'm comfortable being honest. Um, I feel like I've been given a, a purpose, you know, I think, I think that when God gives us sobriety, it's to use us to help other drunks, right? And like, we can help other alcoholics when no one else can. And I have that from my own experience being the drunk being helped and from, you know, being the gift, given the gift of working with other women and, um, God and I, I just have the ability to love and have a capacity for joy. And I don't want to leave Thanksgiving dinners early anymore. You know, like my parents are older. I don't want to, I don't want to miss another time with them. Um, and I just have a capacity for, for gratitude and all of that. But, you know, I'm still flawed. I got really dark in April this year, or March, whenever all this COVID quarantine stuff happened, I got really dark and, um, you know, blessedly it occurred to me to go through the steps with someone different this time. And I did that. And that was a powerful experience. I'm a, I'm a big believer in working the steps on a regular basis that my home group, most of those folks work the steps every year. Um, I've averaged probably once every year, year and a half. And, uh, and it's about getting a new relationship with God, like getting rid of what's blocking me from God. And man, this time through the steps rocked my world. And I like, again, know a new freedom and a new happiness. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, so like today I'm working from home half the time and in the office half the time because of COVID and, um, and I'm like showing up and working. <laughs> I'm not, you know, blowing off my whole day. Have you achieved adulthood? Uh, you know, it's so funny, right? Like you think about like the goal that you're reaching for, it turns out it's not what you really wanted. Mm-hmm. I only like, asked this because think- early on, it seemed like you were always trying to be ahead of the curve. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, now I just want to be where I am. What a blessing that is. I mean, it's this whole idea of being able to live in the present. And I never was able to do that before. I always wanted to skip over today and get to tomorrow. And now I want today. And I and I love how, you know, in the morning instructions for the 11th step, you know, it's like we consider our plans for the day. And so, like, when I consider my plans for the day... I consider them pretty lightly because who knows where God's going to leave me, you know, like what, what's going to come in my way. Um, so I'm not so tied to my plans and designs like I used to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I used to really manage my life by the time I'm this age, I'm going to do this and then this and then this and la 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 la. I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now I think my only goals are to, make a good living to, you know, support the lifestyle we like living and um, answer the phone when people call and show up for my family 
and see what comes next. Like all that false ambition is gone, um, which to me has been a real gift, right? Because I can just be a worker among workers and I really, really like that. And I've become much more effective. If you could go back and talk to first year Jen, what do you think you'd say? I don't know, Alfredo. I mean, almost, I'm a, I feel like I'm going to cry, but like, just that it's so worth it to be open, honest, and willing, right? Like, those are the things that we can't give away to another person. But, you know, continuing to be willing, you know, I never strayed from the program. I've always gone to, always until COVID, you know, at least one meeting every day because I love them and I love what I hear and I feel closer to God and I can, you know, meet people and be a part of, like, I finally have a tribe. I think I was searching for a tribe all my life and turns out my tribe are the members of Alcoholics Anonymous and the, the, the next drunk walking in the door, right? Like that to me is are the people like where their souls speak to me and hopefully mine speaks to them. And and I guess so the advice would be just keep going because I feel like I was really led all the different places, you know, like a member of Treasures encouraged me to go to the meeting at York Street that became my home group, you know, like can't plan that. And I wouldn't tell myself to go to that group my first month because I needed to be where I was. Thanks again, Jen, for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us. And thank you listeners for checking us out. Remember, you can find us at recoveryedgecast.com, also on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, typically wherever you like to find your podcasts. We'll see you next time.